Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the honor of welcoming Peter Vanham to the show today. He is the head of the Chairman's Communication and International Media Council for, for the World Economic Forum. As the head of communications for Chairman Klaus Schwab, he helps shape the conversation on stakeholder capitalism and other topics of interest. But He's also a prolific writer. His op-eds and interviews have appeared in Time, Fortune, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and so many others. He's also the head writer of the World Economic Forum and has helped define our views, or their views rather, on Globalization 4.0 through a series of articles and on the website. He's also written two books and can speak, write, or read six languages. Sheesh, holds three master's degrees. What an amazing career. Welcome, Peter. Well, thank you so much for being with you. I, I thought you were describing somebody else, so I wasn't quite sure if I should respond, but uh, glad to be with you. <laughs> yes, the uh, six languages and three master's degrees really threw me. I can sort of barely string a good sentence together some days, so impressive. Yeah. But I, th I think that's a thing around Europe. So you are joining us today from where? I'm in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. So that means that I'm looking out over the Geneva Lake, uh, which normally is absolutely beautiful with the mountains in the background. Uh, but right now, unfortunately, uh, I'm joining you on a very cloudy and rainy day in spring. Oh, well, you know, I remember the very first time I went to Switzerland. I think I was 14 and I remember walking around that lake, you know, and seeing the fountain and then just uh, I hadn't been back in a number of years. And then about four and a half years ago, I had the pleasure of going to Geneva and then visiting the World Economic Forum headquarters. And I have to say that was a bucket list item for me. I just stood on the grass looking over and just was in awe of the fact that I made it there. You know, So I, I couldn't be more thrilled to have you with us. Absolutely, and I couldn't be more thrilled than to be with, uh, with you. I know you're almost halfway around the world, so it's amazing that we can be together. The amazing benefits of technology, that's for sure. Well, as we get started, I always begin with something I call bullish and bearish. And I thought I would do it a little bit differently this time. It's three questions, bullish you're for it, bearish you're against it. So I went to the Twitter feed of World Economic Forum. And for those of you listening, if you don't follow it, you absolutely should follow it. And I just grabbed the last three topics of tweets. And that's going to be your bullish or bearish questions. All, All right. right. All right. The first one, I don't make this up. Worms for dinner, bullish or bearish? I'm personally a little bit bearish on that. I, I have to say I'm a, I'm a little old school. I, I like the I like a good steak every once in a while, but I know that's not where we're headed. So, yes. So it's for those of you who don't know, you know, check it out. But it it's all about the uh, UK trying to get to more plant based and sustainable kinds of food. So worms was at the top of the list. All right, the next one: <laughs> uh, machine learning to ease urban traffic. Bullish or bearish? I'm, I'm bullish on that. I'm, I'm bullish on anything that uh, that eases urban traffic and that uh, it helps us get to, let's say, a, a greener mobility and a and a nicer type of mobility. So if it's going to be machines uh, that that can do that, I'm all for it. I used to joke with my mom when I was really young, and I'd be like, "Oh, when I become president, the first thing I'm going to do is synchronize all the stoplights," <laughs> because. <laughs> I felt like that's what was causing traffic. So maybe it wasn't quite that simplistic, but uh, you know, glad to know like some 50 years later that <laughs> we still haven't figured it out. All right, the third one, uh, following up on the third tweet, uh, fitness trackers aid in fighting COVID. 
I'm absolutely bullish on that one. And, and in fact, I have to say that during the COVID pandemic, I, I bought myself an, uh, an, Apple, uh, an Apple Watch, uh, not pre precisely to, to combat uh, COVID on a personal level. I, I think uh, social distancing and masks will help more for that. But uh, I do think that uh, we should probably all pay much more attention to our health. And uh, if it's going to be uh, watches or wearables, uh, I think they can help us with that. Yeah. Super exciting. You know, I think this might be a new format for me. I'll grab the three of the, of the latest tweets of, you know, whoever I'm interviewing to just have them uh, share a little bit on that. So thanks for having some fun. Well, you know, this is a really great opportunity because uh, for those of you listening, you know, I work at Salesforce. Um, our CEO, Mark Benioff, is very, very connected. I think he's on the board of the World Economic Forum uh, and was very instrumental in opening the campus in San Francisco. And we are very much ingrained in the thinking of the fourth industrial revolution and globalization, all the things that are happening around stakeholder, stakeholder capitalism, but not everybody is. And so maybe we can start with the fourth industrial revolution, sort of that's a big term, industry 4.0, you know, globalization 4.0, but maybe you could take us on a very quick sort of through the revolutions and, and how they changed over time. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, uh, it was indeed really, really nice to work with uh, Mark as we opened our center for the fourth industrial revolution uh, back in, uh, in I think, five years ago in San Francisco. And if we look back at, uh, and as you said, he was very instrumental in that. Uh, and as you, as you look back into the history of industrial revolutions, because as you said, there's four. So you have first, second, third, and a fourth. And I think the first one, maybe occurred around the time that the park in which the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution is based, the Presidio, uh, uh, that park was perhaps first uh, uh, created or used. This was in the end of the um, 18th uh, and the beginning of the 19th century, the first time that in Britain, in this case, we started to use, let's say, um, machines, weaving machines were, were, were uh, developed. And with that, afterwards also came the uh, steam engine, uh, and that is the first industrial revolution. It really spawned, you know, the you know the yeah that was the real industrial revolution. It it made that things that were previously made in homes were now made in factories, and it made that uh, we went from living in villages that we were able to move around, you know, entire countries. That's the first industrial revolution, and the second one following uh, that is the uh, revolution, let's say, of the um, internal combustion uh, engine, uh, which occurred, of course, you know, about a century later, at the end of the 19th century, uh, you started to see that revolution take off. And also the planes. And, and so the, that is the, the second revolution, industrial revolution, uh, that happened at that time. And that really was the one that propelled, uh, you could say, the United States to uh, its dominant position in the world economy. The first one was very much dominated by uh, Great Britain. And then the third one is that you could say of, of let's say, computers, of, of every, everything that came after the Second World War. You know, first these bulky, big bulky machines, uh, and then, of course, the personal computer, and, and so on and so forth, uh, with companies like um, IBM or uh, Microsoft or Apple. And then the fourth one, and, and maybe it's not a coincidence that, that Mark is such a big uh, proponent of the fourth industrial revolution. The fourth industrial revolution is really, one, is really the one that we're living through right now. 
and of which, of course, uh, companies like Salesforce are at the forefront. And it's and it's really bringing together, as we say, uh, let's say, advances in on the one hand technology and, and internet, and on the other hand, uh, advances in you know you could also call it the the, the merging of the cyber physical world, as we say. So really, the modern technology that we use and that we know today. So that's a little journey, uh, Tiffany. I hope I didn't bore you too much with that overview of the four no, it industrial was per- revolutions. No, it was perfect. It was perfect. And you know, what's interesting is in the United States right now, we're having a very big debate politically about the definition of infrastructure. And if you mm-hmm. follow the definition of infrastructure across those four industrial revolutions, you see how infrastructure has changed, right? It might've been you know, trains and roads and highways, and then those quote unquote highways from one to four looks very different, right? It's the World Wide web, it's the internet, the infrastructure needed to now uh, you know, develop goods and materials is very different. And also just access to being able to have uh, a global economy, which didn't used to be you know, in sort of, I'm guessing in one and two, right? Because it was shipping, not necessarily planes and as planes came in and then you know, as goods started to be something that weren't tangible, all of a sudden, you know, the global economy opened up. Yeah, it's something that we uh, don't often think about, but that impacts us so much is that infrastructure that enables the economy in which we live. And so if you look at the four industrial revolutions from that perspective, then you can really see that there were, let's say, two macro waves of, of globalization that happened, you know, the first one, the first real wave of globalization happened, you know, at the end of that 19th century, beginning of the, of the 20th century, when, um, when you didn't only have those, those uh, steam ships, you had, you didn't only have those railways, but now you also had uh, cars and, and planes uh, starting to emerge. And, uh, and, and that was the first era in which we were globally connected. Then, Though, Tiffany, that globalization was very much based on uh, ships and trains. That was the first wave of globalization, uh, and that ended abruptly with the arrival of the First World War. It was when, uh, I think it was Keynes, the economist in Britain, who famously wrote that you could sit down in London, pick up the phone, and uh, order uh, anything by phone from you know all the out, uh, uh, outskirts of the entire world and expect reasonably that within two weeks you would get it at your doorstep and that was then a miracle of the global economy and then of course you know let's say the third and the fourth industrial revolution uh, so you know the one that, that that was enabled by the computer advances by internet uh, and so on and so forth gave us the current wave of globalization which of course is still underpinned by all these means of transport, the physical infrastructure, but now more and more is happening through and enabled through uh, the digital infrastructure. Uh, And that's extremely important because it means that what used to be so, you used to have manufacturing uh, happening in one place, and then whatever was in the reach of the manufacturer would be their market. Well, nowadays, you can order something on uh, the internet and expect not in 14 days to arrive at your doorstep, but it can happen in a matter of uh, one or two days. That's enabled, of course, through e-commerce. So that digital infrastructure is enormously important today. Yeah, you could even argue, could you imagine people today listening to this, waiting two weeks to get anything at their doorstep? I mean, we are definitely a generation now, right? A global generation that's instant access to almost everything, right? Every, almost everything can be, of course, where you are in the world, there are differences, of course. But in, um, uh, you know, 
the mature markets, it's sort of instantaneous gratification across so many things, you know, autonomous yeah. vehicles delivering food, you know, drones delivering medicines. I mean, it's just all of a sudden you have all of this capability we never had before. And a decoupling also, and this is important, I think, Tiffany, of, uh, you know, sort of the integrated company. I mean, right now there are, for example, uh, influencers, social media influencers, uh, you know, for example, in China, China is very big on this, where, uh, you know, they will release in a, in a video show, in an online video show, they will release their fashion collections and they will not make fashion. They will not create it. They will not manufacture it. No, they will basically just uh, use uh, Alibaba or some platform to, to contract that out. They will have sold their entire collection online when they present the uh, uh, their collection. And then they still have to make it. They still have to produce it. So you see, th this uh, era is really different than the eras that came before even the previous industrial uh, revolutions. Yeah, and I was reading something the other day about how just-in-time delivery and manufacturing got really caught during COVID, right? Because it, you know, initially in the car manufacturing, it was like, let's store all the parts, right? Um, Japan was very leading in how do you go to lean manufacturing and just-in-time, and everybody sort of caught up, right? Why do we need to hold all this inventory? Let's just get just-in-time. Then the world shuts down, <laughs> the supply chain stops, and no one can get their hands on just in time. And so we're seeing car manufacturers not being able to, you know, actually build cars, chip manufacturers having problems, food supply chains getting challenged, right? These little parts that come from all over the world in this just in time, the supply chain was really strained over the last year um, as we globalized that we didn't have any way to really uh, back up the fact that that had stopped completely. Right. And, you know, of course, technology has allowed us to be extremely flexible on, on this sense, has enabled us. But indeed, other uh, events that have occurred, particularly, you know, let's say the climate crisis and now, of course, COVID, uh, mean that even though technology enables you to do one thing, for example, just in time production or just not owning any part of the production uh, chain, uh, that these other crises that we're facing, of course, they force us in another direction and they force us um, to you know, create resilience in the supply chain and in our economy by, for example, building in, uh, again, uh, reserves and, and, and things like that. Now, you know, if we think about solutions, structural solutions, you know, you could say on the one hand, you know what, let's build up more inventory again. Let's, let's make sure that we have some reserves, some backup. That is one way of building resilience, of course. The other way of, of building resilience is preventing uh, these kinds of disasters from happening in the first place and putting in place uh, the necessary measures to do so. Um, and, and, and I think that the jury is still out on whether the long-term effect of the COVID crisis will be building up resilience in the one way or in the other way. I think it's clearly superior uh, to prevent these kinds of crises from happening in the first place. You know, that would be the hope. That would be the hope. You know, I, I, it's been devastating and inspiring at the same time, the last 14 months for me, right? Devastating from a small business and communities and health crisis and all of that. And then inspiring on the other side to see how, you know, competing companies have joined together to solve problems or small, medium, and even large businesses making pivots into industries like PPE equipment that they never made, but they manufactured cups, let's say, right? But they had plastic and they had the capability and really shifted. Um, and showing up to figure out, look, if we're all in this together, you know, how quickly can we turn around? And what was fascinating is many companies, 
large and small, had put off this sort of fourth industrial revolution investment in digitizing the business. And they were caught flat footed and not being able to, you know, do all the things we've been doing. Like you said at the beginning of this, you're in Switzerland, I'm in Los Angeles, we're having a video call like that was available, but we weren't using it this way. And so things have really amplified and accelerated. What have you heard and seen, you know, through your work at the World Economic Forum around this resiliency and agility? You know, do you think it will be here to stay? Yes and no. I mean, and, and let me qualify that immediately. I mean, if you look at these catastrophic events that happen, for example, also in the past, you know, the first wave of globalization was ended abruptly, as I said, through the arrival of the first world war. Um, you know, some effects, you know, remained then and some did not remain. Right. We may people may have thought in 1920 that, you know, we were never going to have any more that world in which Keynes lived and, and in which you could order things from your uh, phone and get them delivered in two weeks at your doorstep. But and, and surely, you know, we had to wait for it for a long time. But now it is uh, it has come back and in a way that, you know, even expands what was available then. So to think to, to take the example of today, of course, you know, if we're now today all home working still, um, you know, to think that that is going to last forever. Uh, I don't think so. I, I think that there are certain aspects of human nature that make that we will want to be physically together again, uh, whether at work or at events or other places. But surely some other uh, effects will stay. And, and the, the example that you gave of organizing video conferences, for example, I mean, surely uh, those things uh, will remain. So I think it's a bit of a mixed um, mixed picture. And we're about to discover, I think, in the next few months and years as we sort of recover from this uh, first um, uh, devastating wave of the pandemic, uh, what will remain and what uh, what will go back to you know, what we used to know before. Yeah, I feel like it'll fall somewhere in the middle. I often say I don't think it'll stay the way that it is now. I don't think it'll go all the way back to where we were, because what a shame if that's the case. We will have learned nothing about everything we've been talking about, right? Supply chains, distribution, food distribution, you know, the planet. I mean, when the world shut down, it's like the for those of you who sort of went outside and walked around, it's like the earth woke up. It's like I heard birds and saw animals that I hadn't seen. The air was clear. The roads were clear. Right. And you go, well, we can't get back there. But that's what's possible if we're not doing what we're doing you know, to the planet and to the world. Uh, that leads me right into the second thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is the stakeholder capitalism. Now, there's a lot of conversation. Once again, you know, uh, our CEO, Mark, he's very much around business being the greatest platform for change and purpose over profit. And now we've got something, uh, you know, uh, that is CEOs really signing up for being much more intentional about the planet, their employees, you know, the products and service or the products that they use, materials they use, and really giving back to a broader stakeholder community. Maybe you can walk people through what that means and, and how it's really playing a role today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is really indeed one of those concepts that lies at the heart of the World Economic Forum and many of its uh, partners, as you say. And and it's really this idea that as an economy, uh, sorry, as a company, you are more than just an economic unit that generates uh, profits uh, on a short-term basis, but you also have a function in society and that your purpose as a company is therefore not just to make uh, the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time, but it's also to contribute to a better 
society to a better world. That's really the idea of stakeholder capitalism. Um, and, it, and it contrasts in that way, in that aspect, to this notion of what other people would call shareholder capitalism, this idea of, of short-term profit maximization. And, you know, th there are some, some consequences that, of course, if you believe that as a company, as a company leader, that you have a broader function in society rather than just to make short-term profits, that also means that, you know, you have a broader group of constituents, a broader group of stakeholders that you want to consult uh, than just your shareholders. You want to consult also your uh, employees, the communities that you operate in, and, uh, and other uh, stakeholders. And of course, uh, when you do that, when you look after these people, when you consult these people, you'll end up also probably doing some things that benefit these people uh, more. So that's, that's really the idea of stakeholder capitalism. And it's, and it's something that we've been advocating for. Our founder, Klaus Schwab, um, has been adv advocating for it since the very beginning of, of our organization 50 years ago. Well, you know, I think it's an interesting one because as people are more aware of their role in their communities, in their cities and towns and, and in the globe, now that we know a lot of the things we've learned over the last 14 months, it's like you can't unlearn them, right? So now this is another area where what will we do differently based on almost what we were just talking about, you know, in this kind of stakeholder, stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, and it, I mean, the, the, the most obvious thing, of course, and I've seen this firsthand uh, in this first uh, wave last year, March, April of the of the pandemic, the most obvious thing is, of course, that companies, even companies that did not adhere to stakeholder capitalism or the, or the stakeholder principle, very abruptly came to realize that, you know, they will not be able to thrive unless uh, all, all of society thrives. I mean, when things came to a standstill, uh, you know, there were a lot, a lot of companies that were suffering as well as uh, people that were suffering. And so I think in that sense, the COVID crisis has been a wake up call, even for those people that don't um, believe in this idea of stakeholder capitalism or didn't yet believe in it, um, that they uh, that they should. And 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 you'll see that play out, I think, over the next few years and, and hopefully decades that that becomes the norm, that companies go back a little bit to you know, building a better future uh, together with the rest of society. And, you know, where it originates from that idea, I would say, is this comes from sort of the post-Second World Reconstruction. Our founder, Klaus Schwab, uh, was seven when the war ended, saw, you know, as he went to primary school and then high school and, and university, sort of saw how Europe rebuilt. And he saw uh, as his parents uh, were actually active in a big industrial uh, company, he saw how that company could not thrive unless the rest of the of the of the city uh, thrived and its and its uh, inhabitants thrived. And so, th what he learned firsthand, very uh, personally and very uh, deeply, uh, he's been advocating for forever since. And I think we're all now going through a similar learning moment uh, that teaches us this lesson. Uh, the hard way, but hopefully with, with very positive consequences going forward. Well, you know, as we start to wrap this up, um, you know, so many use the World Economic Forum. I'm sure many listening have heard about Davos, uh, but maybe you can wrap this up with sort of the goal and the remit of World Economic Forum, what you guys do and how people who are listening might be able to learn more and participate in some of the activities that you uh, do around the globe. Yeah, sure. I mean, we've talked, of course, about a lot of these elements, eh, the, the things that we believe in, namely, for example, that you need to have 
companies and governments and civil society all working together to build uh, a better world. This idea that, uh, that technology can be a force for good, but that you have to work to make it be a force for good. And indeed, this idea that uh, you know, having a world in which people are connected whether people or companies, the entire economy, uh, where you have some sort of globalization, right? Uh, that that's a good thing because it helps us build and maintain peace and prosperity. Those are the are, are three of the founding ideas of the of the World Economic Forum, um, and and what we work to, towards to and 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 that I think every one of us can contribute to. I mean, like the the challenge of making sure that technology is a force for good. And not uh, for uh, you know for for bad you could say is I think one that we all experience one way or the other right we all sort of see that 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 challenge play out on a day to day basis this idea that you know as employees whether we are managers or or, or rank and file or or company leaders the the idea that we all have to contribute not just to uh, delivering profits but to making uh, our company a better place to work. Uh, more diverse, more inclusive, and so on and so forth is something we are confronted with every day. So those are the the, the ways that uh, people can contribute to those ideals of the World Economic Forum. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, what's what's so great is this full circle moment, you know, randomly walking through the halls of uh, the World Economic Forum headquarters in uh, Cologne, Switzerland, and I bumped into this gentleman and we started talking and he introduced himself. His name was Peter. I said, hey, my name's Tiffany. And we started talking and here we are, right? Four years later, I finally got him to agree to come on the uh, What's Next podcast. So I'm so thrilled, Peter, that you uh, agreed to spend some time with us and share your thoughts around two really key topics, the globalization 4.0 and stakeholder capitalism as well, appreciate all the work you and Klaus do at the World Economic Forum. So thank you again for joining us here on the What's Next podcast. Uh, any last words or any ways they can follow you and your work? Yeah, thanks for so much for, for having us on. I mean, we, we really talked about these, these top, top ideas. Uh, people want to learn more. Uh, stakeholder capitalism, it's also a book and you can get it uh, anywhere books are sold. So if people are interested, uh, we'd be pleased uh, if you wanted to learn more. Great. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for having me. What an amazing conversation with Peter. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Getting a lesson on the fourth industrial revolution, stakeholder capitalism, and all the amazing things the World Economic Forum is doing. So please check out their work. Continue to make sure you push yourself as we come to the other side of this pandemic. Wishing you all the best health and safety. Thank you so much for listening to the What's Next podcast. I'm Tiffany Bova. Please subscribe, share with your friends, leave some feedback. I look forward to you joining me again next time.